Okay, let's open in prayer and then we'll begin. Father, thank you for this beautiful day, this Lord's Day, this Sabbath day, where we are able to rest from our common employment and our common recreations to give ourselves to the worship of your most holy name. We thank you for this opportunity to fix our minds upon your holy word in a pronounced way. Help us to focus our minds, especially on this topic of the kingdom of God. Increase our understanding of Christ the King and his kingdom and our place in it so that our faith would grow stronger, so that our obedience would increase. It's in the name of Christ that we pray these things. Amen. We're taking a very long time to go through chapter 5 of this book, The Israel of God, by O. Palmer Robertson. Uh, This chapter, chapter 5, is about uh, the coming kingdom, uh, and Israel and the coming kingdom, rather. We are now on part 3 of our consideration of this chapter in part 1. Uh, Some terms were defined, the kingdom of God, Israel also, and then some affirmations concerning the relation of Israel to the coming kingdom were put forward. It was at that point that we began to consider the way in which the kingdom of God is talked about in the Gospels. In part two of this uh, study on this chapter, we looked at the Israel, Israel and the coming of the kingdom in the book of Acts. So we walked rather throughly, uh, rather slowly through the book of Acts. My brain is still warming up here, um, and uh, considered how the kingdom is talked about in in that book. And then now we are going into the writings of Paul, and we are going to consider the way in which Paul the apostle talks about uh, the kingdom of God, and. And of course, in the back of our minds, we're asking the question, what is Israel's relationship to this kingdom Uh, as as Paul picks up this topic and discusses it? I think this is wonderful stuff. I hope you... Well, you want to know something? This class has been pretty well attended, uh, even this far into it. So it seems like you're interested in this. I I think this is wonderful stuff. Uh, This is good theology here, good biblical theology, even good systematic theology as we consider this subject of God's kingdom. So let's move through the lesson. Israel and the coming of the kingdom in Paul. What does Paul have to say about the kingdom of God? And what does he say that would help us to answer the question, what is Israel's relationship to this kingdom? He, um, first of all, talks about... uh, The kingdom from Paul's vantage point, and I have just a little remark here. Think about the implications of each of these points. It's just a little encouragement to do this. When I read this for the first time in Robertson's book, I realized that these are little statements that you could quickly just read and move past and not think much about, but there's there's a lot in these statements here. First of all, point one, for Paul, the kingdom of God may be designated as the kingdom of Christ. See Ephesians 5.5, for example. By using this expression, Paul goes beyond the Gospels and the book of Acts in specifically identifying God's kingdom with the kingdom of Jesus the Messiah. In this kingdom, Jesus reigns as Lord. So we can refer to God's kingdom as the kingdom of Christ. Both of these ways of speaking were referring to the same thing, the same kingdom. It's not a different kingdom. The kingdom of God is not different from the kingdom of heaven, and the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are not different from the kingdom of Christ. These are all referring to the same kingdom, you understand. But what would be the emphasis, what would be the thing stressed when we refer to this kingdom as the kingdom of Jesus Christ, as the kingdom of Christ? What would be the the truth being stressed by speaking of the kingdom in these terms? Anyone want to... 
to say it. This is the kingdom over which Christ is king. It is God's kingdom, but God is ruling and reigning over this kingdom through Jesus Christ, the crucified, risen, and ascended Lord. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Him. He rules over all things, true. He rules particularly in His kingdom manifest in the church. Christ is our Lord. Christ is the Lord of the church. Uh, that is the thing being stressed by the title uh, the kingdom of Christ. So, if we back up from that, and if we were to ask the question, what relationship is there between modern day ethnic and political Israel and the kingdom of God, considered under the heading the kingdom of Christ, what would we say? We would say there's really no relationship whatsoever because that nation and that people does not have Jesus Christ as Lord and King. There may be some within that nation that do. But the kingdom of God is the kingdom of Christ. Uh, Christ is king of this kingdom, and all who are citizens of this kingdom have Jesus as, as Lord. That's why I say think of the implications of each of these points. They're, they're just simple observations, but we're helped greatly by them as we seek to understand the nature of, of the kingdom of God. Point two, the current reality of Christ's kingdom has great practical significance for Paul, who continually had to contend with people promoting false doctrine and false morals. The apostle planned to go to Corinth and find out what power his arrogant opponents had, for the kingdom of God comes with power, 1 Corinthians 4, 19-20. The risen Christ had promised that His disciples would receive power through the coming of the Holy Spirit, Acts 1.8. And Paul was confident that he possessed this power while his opponents did not. So here Robertson is noticing that um, those who are in the kingdom of God or the kingdom of Christ, they will all be spirit-filled. So those in the kingdom are regenerated. Uh, those in the kingdom have faith in Christ, have Jesus as Lord because the Spirit has been poured out upon them with power. That's the point that Robertson is making here. This kingdom is not a common kingdom, therefore it's a spiritual kingdom, one in which the Spirit of God uh, moves and, 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 and draws sinners to repentance and sanctifies them thoroughly. So we cannot uh, identify the kingdom of, of God in any way with the common kingdoms of this world. It, the kingdom of God is the kingdom of Christ and this kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. Did you just hear the Trinity there? <laughs> the kingdom of God is the kingdom of Christ, and it is the kingdom that has been brought into existence by the, the working of the, the Holy Spirit. Okay, so a, a, a very simple observation, but again, great significance to it. Point three, believers in Christ have been rescued from the power of darkness and brought into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. See Colossians 1.13. This kingdom does not have to do with meat and drink. Instead, it focuses on righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So here uh, we see uh, this dimension in Paul's writings. Uh, see, for example, Romans 14, 17, uh, that those who belong to the kingdom of God have been rescued out of another kingdom, a kingdom of darkness. Uh, and it does not have to do with meat and drink. That kind of stands for earthly things in general. You know, that this kingdom is not of this world. It's not concerned with, with meat and drink, the things of this earth. It's a, it's, it's a different kind of kingdom. It's a heavenly kingdom. It focuses on righteousness, pe righteousness peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So these are just three basic observations that, I, again, I think 
are very important, though, though simple, they're very important. Uh, Paul um, also speaks of the future dimension of the kingdom. And this has practical implications for Paul and, and f- in his writings and for us. So there is a future dimension to the kingdom from Paul's vantage point. He could admonish believers to walk worthy of the God who was calling them into His kingdom and glory. See 1 Thessalonians 2.12. So, we are citizens in Christ's kingdom now. But there is a sense in which we are being called into the kingdom of glory. When we talk about the kingdom of glory... So here we're talking about the same kingdom again. It's not a different kingdom, but when we refer to the kingdom of glory... What are we stressing? The consummation. Uh, the kingdom of Christ is the kingdom of glory, but when we talk about glory, we're talking about the consummate state. Again, it's this acknowledgement that the kingdom is here now, but it's not here now in its fullness. We're awaiting the consummation. So Paul had this perspective, and when he admonished believers to walk worthy of the God who was calling them into His kingdom of glory, he's stressing this progressive element of the kingdom. It's here now, you're citizens in this kingdom now. Now the kingdom of God suffers violence, right? But it will be consummated at some point, and all who are in this kingdom will be glorified, and they will behold God in glory. Also, Paul does encourage believers to endure. The patient endurance of the believer shows that he is worthy of the kingdom of God. So, believers are to endure now. Uh, They are to endure trials and tribulations and sufferings of various kinds. So, that is how the kingdom is manifest now. Humbly, it suffers violence. Uh, It is not yet consummated is the point that is being made. Point three, Paul indicates that the unrighteous will never inherit God's kingdom. So there is a kingdom still to be inherited. And he stresses that the unrighteous will never inherit the kingdom of God. In one case he specifies ten, and in another fifteen forms of immorality that characterize the people who will be excluded from God's kingdom. Again, this is in the future from Paul's vantage point and from ours. The implication is clear. Only those whose lives have been changed by the power of the indwelling Spirit of God can expect to enter the blessedness of God's consummate kingdom. And I have those passages that Robertson is referring to uh, spelled out for us here. 1 Corinthians 6, 9-10 Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's, the, the kingdom of God? This is referring to the kingdom of God consummate. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So there's a strong warning here. Galatians 5, 19-21 is similar. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, Strife, jealousy, fits of angers, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these, I warn you, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so he is speaking to an audience where I think clearly he's speaking to people who think they are Christians. <laughs> but he's offering a warning saying those who, those who live this way should not expect to inherit the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God consummate. Um, yes, th- this should help shape our doctrine of, of salvation too, shouldn't it? Are we saved 
by works? Are we saved by keeping God's law? Are we saved by not doing these things and doing things that are holy instead? Are we saved by that? We would say no. It's not the ground of our salvation. We are saved through faith in Jesus Christ alone. But will those who have Jesus as Lord and Savior go on living in this way? Uh, Will they go on doing the sins that are uh, listed here uh, habitually as a way of life and without repentance? The answer is certainly not. It means something to have Jesus as Lord. Lords are to be obeyed. And so that is the warning. Paul is warning professing Christians, saying, Listen, if this is your life, if this is your way of life, you should not expect to inherit the kingdom of God. No one who lives this way will inherit the kingdom of God. Um, but the righteous will inherit it. It is those who have been made righteous by the righteousness of Christ imputed to them who will inherit the kingdom of God. And those who have been made righteousness, righteous by Christ, who have been renewed by the Holy Spirit, who have been drawn to faith in Jesus the Lord, they are not going to live this way. We all stumble, we all sin in many ways. But this will not characterize the true believer. And so the point being made here in this study is that the citizens of of this kingdom have been changed. They are not worldly people. They are people who have been made alive by God's Word and by God's Spirit. Uh, They are set apart from the world in this way. And so we can gain greater insight into what the kingdom is by making this observation. Point four Yet there must be a significant transition before a person can move from the present kingdom of the Messiah to the future, uh, consummate kingdom. For flesh and blood, the present constitution of the human being, cannot inherit the kingdom of God in its final form. See 1 Corinthians 5.50. A dramatic change must take place. Human flesh that is capable of corruption must take on a form that cannot be corrupted an existence that is subject to dying must be made, must be remade so that it cannot die. Only then can a person be transferred from the present form of the kingdom to its consummate state. What is Robertson talking about here? Anyone? What is he talking about here? You're like, I wasn't even paying attention as you were reading that. <laughs> He's talking about the resurrection on the last day and the glorification even of our bodies. Uh, There must be a great transition that takes place before we can inherit this eternal kingdom of glory. We ourselves must be glorified. And the scriptures teach that when Christ returns, there is going to be a great resurrection of the just and the unjust, the righteous and the unrighteous. There will be a bodily resurrection. There will be a judgment for those not in Christ. For those in Christ, there will be... Um, a, a passing through judgment and into the, the kingdom of glory, but we will not have the same kind of body that we have now. It will be a physical body, but it will be glorified so that it is no longer given over to corruption or decay. It will be a body that is fully glorified by the Holy Spirit, and it will be a spiritual body. That's actually the, Paul, the term that Paul uses. It's kind of a weird term. We will have spiritual bodies in the new heavens and new earth. That does not mean that they will not be physical, for we will have bodies, but there will be spiritual bodies, meaning there will be bodies that are renewed and and, and upheld and empowered 
and glorified by the Spirit of God so that they are no longer given over to corruption and decay. It, it, it's the thing that was offered to Adam in the garden as symbolized by the tree of life. Uh, I've said this to you before. What a strange name for that tree. Adam was alive in paradise. Why was this tree of life held out before him? Well, there was a higher form of life that was offered even to Adam. Something higher than what he enjoyed in the garden, in that place of paradise. It, it was life in glory. For all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God, the Scriptures say. That's what Adam fell short of, glorification. He fell short of the glory of God when he fell into sin and we in Him. Uh, so, where does Christ bring us? He brings us to glory. He Himself has gone there already. Um, how do we know what our glorified bodies will be like? There's a lot of mystery here, brothers and sisters, no doubt. But do we have an example of a glorified body? Jesus. Yes. During that 40-day period of time, Christ met with His disciples. He showed Himself a lot. He, had his, he possessed His glorified body. And He did some things during that period of time that are interesting. You know, there's mystery here. But one of the things He did is He ate in front of His disciples. Why did He do that? To show that he had a real body. And he told Thomas, who was doubting, touch, you know, and see. So he was placing stress on the fact that this, this body of his was a real body, but it was with this body that he ascended into the heavenly realm also. So it is that spiritual body. That is the body that Christ possesses now, the spiritual body, the, the glorified body, the one that we expect to have if we have faith in him. Uh, it will be a body suitable for consummation. It will be a body suitable for the new heavens and new earth and life in, in glory. Uh, thanks be to God for this. Our salvation is whole. He does not just save our souls. He saves us body and soul. It, it, and so we must trust in Him. Uh, so wonderful. Uh, that's just an observation that Robertson is making concerning Paul's talk about the kingdom of God. Uh, to inherit this kingdom, this consummate kingdom in the future, we must undergo a great change, a kind of metamorphosis must take place. Uh, that is the point. Uh, point five, in addition, a judgment is coming in which Jesus Christ will judge the living and dead. Believers must discharge their stewardship in view of His epiphany and His kingdom. See 2 Timothy 4.1. Paul's expectation that the living will be judged along with the dead at Christ's appearance indicates that for some there will be no intermediate state between the two phases of the kingdom of God. There's a lot packed into this book. That's a great statement. Um, we are to live our lives now being mindful of the second coming of Christ and the final judgment. We're to live with a sense of expectation. We're, therefore, we, we are to live so that we would be found doing what the Lord would have us do when He returns. That, that teaching permeates the New Testament. You know, We should not be surprised by the second coming. We should not be found as unfaithful servants but as living faithful lives before the Lord when He returns. Uh, the little comment that he makes here at the end that I appreciate is that um, Paul talks about Christ judging the living and the dead at His appearance. And this indicates that for some there will be no intermediate state between the two phases of the kingdom of God. In other words, there's not going to be a millennium that separates Christ's coming from uh, the final judgment. There's just going to be a lot that happens on the last day. Uh, the dead will be raised. Uh, 
those who are alive will be caught up. There will be a final judgment. There will be everything that's brought to a conclusion, and we will enter into the consummate state. So uh, that's, it, it's just a little remark that signals that uh, Robertson is not a, 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 a premillennialist, uh, especially not a pre-tribulational premillennialist, you know. So I appreciate that. Uh, letter C here, but what is the place of Israel in the coming of the kingdom for Paul? Does the Jew, does the ethnic Jew, have a special role to play in the realization of Messiah's rule in either of these two stages? So presently or at the time of the consummation. That's what this book is about. After all, some general observations have been made about the kingdom of God, which is the kingdom of Christ. And these observations help us answer this question. What is the place of Israel in the coming of the kingdom for Paul? Does the Jew, ethnic Israel therefore, have a special role to play in the realization of the Messiah's rule of, in either of these two stages? Either here in its inaugurated stage or in its consummated stage. And he handles this question very carefully. I appreciate it very much what he says. First of all, on page 47, Robertson says... The concept of a messianic kingdom implies Jewish participation. For the idea of the Messiah arose in Israel. Jesus was born and died as the king of the Jews. The twelve apostles were Jews and the first Christians were Jews. Paul recognized the advantages of the Jews in the purpose of God. This is a great place to start. Will the Jews, will the ethnic Jews participate in Christ's kingdom? Well, yes, to some degree. Jesus was the Messiah that arose from amongst the Jews. They're clearly going to have a role to play. They clearly did in the, in the early days of the church. Most of the first Christians were Jewish Christians, and there have always been Jewish Christians throughout the history of the church. Jew, ethnic Jews have had faith in Jesus the Messiah. Thanks be to God. So yes, the fact that Jesus is the Messiah does imply Jewish, Jewish participation. Point two... But sadly, not all Jews have participated in the kingdom of the Messiah. Um, many have not, in fact. Maybe it could be stated more strongly. Many have not participated in the kingdom of the Messiah. In one of his earliest writings, Paul describes how many Jews were rigidly opposed to the gospel of Christ. See 1 Thessalonians 2, 14-16 for the sake of time and space. I, I have not... Um, I do not have that text in front of us, but you may see it for yourself. And this shouldn't surprise you. There's just lots of hostility that exists between the non-believing Jews and Christ and His apostles and later disciples throughout the pages of the New Testament. It, it, it's even pictured in the book of Revelation, too. It's all over the place. Uh, Romans 10.1, <clears throat> well, no, point B. Yet Paul can by no means be described as an enemy of the Jews. He could wish himself cursed from Christ for the sake of his brethren, his kinsmen according to the flesh. This is a reference to Rome, what he says in Romans 9.3. His heart's desire and prayer for them is that they might be saved, Romans 10.1. So, Paul is no enemy of the Jews, even though he acknowledges that many Jews have rejected Jesus as the Messiah, and he have even opposed Christians fervently. He's no enemy of the Jews. He himself was a Jew. Uh, and he reveals his heart in his writings. If it were possible for him to be cut off and all of the Jews saved, he would do it. I mean, he just so longs for his kinsmen according to the flesh to be saved. 
And so that is his desire. That is his prayer. And then Robertson notes that God has not cast off his people, for there is and always will be a remnant from the Jewish people according to the election of grace. There will always be a remnant. And this is a reference to Romans 11, 2-5. We will not go there today and look at these passages because the next chapter in Robertson's book is just a long exposition of Romans chapter 11, which is needed. It's a very important text, for it's in that text that we hear Paul say, And so, all Israel shall be saved. That is Romans eleven twenty six. And so, all Israel shall be saved. Why do you think Paul or Robertson is going to focus on Romans chapter 11? An entire chapter is devoted to it in his book. It's because of this little phrase right here. How do you think some have interpreted uh, this line from Paul, All Israel shall be saved. How do you think some have interpreted this, Chad? There'll be a massive salvation of ethnic Jews at some point. Right. Yeah, some take this to mean that there will be a point in the future where literally, I I guess, all Jews alive will will come to to faith in Jesus the Messiah. And of course, for the premillennialists, they associate that very much so with the end times and with the millennium, maybe a return to to a stress upon ethnic Israel. So we're going to take up that question in a future lesson. Is that what Paul means here, or does he mean uh, something else? Uh, but I think the point that Robertson is here making is that whatever that phrase means, there is room in God's plan of salvation for ethnic Jews, of course, under the New Covenant era. There always has been, from the beginning, there were ethnic Jews who had Jesus as Lord and Savior, and there have been ethnic Jews who have had Him as Lord and Savior throughout the church age, and that will continue. But how are we to interpret that? Well, Paul tells us that there's always going to be a remnant. There's always going to be a remnant of, of Jews, of, of, of Israelites who have true faith in the Messiah. And this is due to God's election, and it is by His grace. And in fact, this same phenomenon has been present Uh, throughout the history of redemption, going all the way back to the days of Abraham. Um, There were descendants of Abraham who had faith in the promises of God concerning the Messiah, and there were descendants of Abraham who did not. And so this principle of remnant has always been there. There There's always been Israel and then true Israel. There's always been the Israel of flesh, uh, according to the flesh, and there's been an Israel of faith. This teaching is so very clear in Paul's writings, it's clear throughout the Scriptures. This principle has always been true, and it continues to be true to the present day. Um, And so, Robertson will help us to see that now and in future uh, lessons. So, from Paul's perspective, no question should be raised about the participation of Israel in the coming of the Kingdom of the Messiah in its present form. Throughout the present age, Jews will be saved. And they will make a significant contribution to the kingdom of God. Point three, but what will the role of Israel be in the final realization of the Messianic kingdom? Will the Jews, the nation of Israel, and the land of patriarchal promise have a distinctive role to play? The most remarkable thing about the remainder of Paul's writings is the lack of any suggestion that the Jews, considered nationally or individually, will play a distinctive role in the coming 
and the final coming of the kingdom of God. Remember what we said earlier in this, in our consideration of this chapter, that the word Israel can be used in so many different ways. Remember how Robertson began by defining terms. You can see how important it is to remember that here. Um, we can use the word Israel to refer to the church, to all who have faith in, in Jesus the Messiah, or we can use it to refer to an ethnic group of people or even a land, etc., etc. You can see how that's coming into play as we continue on in this chapter. But Robertson is clear. He is here talking about the Jews, that is to say the nation of Israel, the land. Uh, and he's asking the question, will it have any particular distinctive role to play in the coming kingdom? And his point is that there's no indication of that whatsoever in the New Testament in general or in Paul's writings in particular. Uh, he does acknowledge that we will have to take up Romans 11.26 to consider it, and we will do this at a later time. But in any case, for Paul, the kingdom of the Messiah has come, and it is yet to come in its fullness for Jews and Gentiles alike. The door is open to full participation in the blessings of this kingdom. You know, it's, it's sad. Those who teach this doctrine will sometimes be... Well, what, what names will they be called? Does anyone know? The nastiest name of all? Anti-Semitic. I mean, it, no one wants to be called that. Right? No one wants to be called that. And so when people do throw that throw that name around and, and that insult around. It doesn't bother me too much. It just reveals that the person is pretty ignorant. They're not listening. They're not listening. Because here, uh, Robertson, who teaches very strongly and, and correctly that ethnic Israel and the land of Israel have no distinctive role to play now or in the future as it pertains to the kingdom of Christ. He teaches that firmly. He's also, can you hear him emphasizing it? That Paul's perspective is that he... He loves his kinsmen according to the flesh. He loves the Jews. He wishes that he could be cut off and they saved. He, he fully expects that some will be saved if they profess faith in Jesus the Messiah, that, that, that the Jews are going to contribute to the kingdom and they're going to be participating in this kingdom. All of that is, is clearly stated here. It was Paul's perspective and it should be ours. We should pray for the salvation of Jewish people just like we pray for the salvation of Gentile people. The gospel should be preached to them. If any were to come to faith in Christ, we should warmly welcome them into the Christian congregation, etc. etc. Et There's no anti-Semitism here whatsoever. It's just... It's just a desire to teach what the Bible teaches regarding the nature of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Christ. Okay, so I think all of this is very important to say. I added to this lesson a little bit. I think points four and five are, are just from me. Um, I felt like more needed to be said here about Paul's teaching on this subject. Maybe it just goes beyond what Robertson uh, was wanting to stress. Uh, but I wanted to read a few passages of Scripture to you from Paul's writings that emphasize that the true Israel of God are all who believe in Christ, no matter Jew or Gentile. We've been talking about this fact. The true Israel of God are all who believe in Christ, no matter if they are Jew or Gentile. But I just wanted to read some of these passages to you so that you can see how clear it is. Galatians 3, 28-29, Paul says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. 
for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. doesn't matter if you're Jew or Greek. If you have faith in Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring in the truest sense. Because you do not merely share the DNA of Abraham, you share his faith. And that is what matters for all eternity. That, that's my explanation of what Paul is saying here. By the way, when Paul says there is neither, neither Jew nor Greek, he doesn't mean that there is no distinction whatsoever between Jew and Greek. Ethnic distinctions do still remain because in this passage, I, you could see the dot, dot, dot here. Um, for the sake of saving space in my outline, I, I cut out this portion of the text. But he also talks about how there's no male nor female. Well, there are males and there are females. That's not Paul's point. But he's saying in Christ, the distinction means nothing. In the sense of us standing on equal footing before the Lord. There are still distinctions that matter very much in the world, in our homes, in our churches. But as it pertains to our standing before God in Christ Jesus, we are on equal footing. Jews and Gentiles are on equal footing under the new covenant. Male, female, equal footing. Slave, free, equal footing. We are all one in Christ. That's the point. Point B here, this is Ephesians 2, 13-16. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Who's he talking about? Gentiles. For he, for Christ himself is our peace, who has made us both one. Who's the both a reference to? Jew and Gentile. And has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility... By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. So what is the dividing wall of hostility that he's referring to? It is that racial divide. I wonder if it's not a reference to the wall in the temple that separated the court of the Gentiles from the court that the Jews were allowed to enter. It's been demolished. And that, you know, it was demolished physically, by the way. But... Um, Theologically, it has been demolished when God abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. What's this a reference to? Ceremonial laws. Yeah, civil law, ceremonial laws. Uh, the, the positive laws of the Old Covenant have been taken away. So you used to be divided by dietary restrictions and all sorts of ceremonies, etc., etc. Uh, you used to be divided by that wall that stood in the temple that separated Jew from Gentile. All that's gone. It's gone. And why did He do it? That He might create in Himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both, Jew and Gentile, to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. That's a powerful passage. He's saying these distinctions are gone. They're gone. So to those who believe that there is a distinction between Jew and Gentile still, a different plan for the Jew than for the Gentile, a different way of salvation, whatever the case may be, however your theological system expresses it. You're, you're running against the grain of the teaching of Holy Scripture. You're running against the grain of the progress that has been made in the history of redemption. We have gone from two to one, and it will remain one until Christ returns to make all things new, is the idea. Romans 9, 6 through 8 but it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. 
look, that's a great text to point to, isn't it? That the word um, Israel can be used in different ways. You see it used in different ways, and only two, verse, uh, two words separate <laughs> uh, the use of the word Israel. Not all who are descended from Israel, how is the word being used there? Ethnic. Belong to Israel. How is the word being used there? Spiritual, uh, it's a reference to the elect. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but, and then he quotes the Old Testament, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise are counted as offspring. And if you were to consider the rest of the book of, the the chapter of Romans 9, you would see that Paul does teach us about the doctrine of election here very clearly. So, it's always been this way, is Paul's point. Not all who descend from Israel belong to Israel. There is an Israel and then there is a true Israel of God. And what distinguishes the two? Faith and the promised Messiah. D is Romans 9, 22-26. So yeah, we drop down here in Romans 9. What if God, desiring to show His wrath and make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy which He has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom He has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed He says in Hosea, Hosea the Old Testament prophet, Those who were not My people I will call My people, and her who was not beloved I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, You are not My people, there they will be called sons of the living God. What's the Hosea quote all about? This is Old Testament. This is written in that period of time where the kingdom of God was prefigured in a very pronounced way amongst ethnic Israel, in the land of Israel. Everything was Israel-centric in those days. The nations were left in darkness. But then you have this prophet Hosea, Who's saying these words? What is he saying about the future? In the future, what's going to happen? The The grafting of the wild branches to the one true. That's another image that Paul uses. He's saying the day's coming where the Gentile nations who are right now called not my people, they're going to be called my people. So this isn't the invention of Christ or the Apostles. It's not a New Testament thing. It's, it's an Old Testament thing. And Paul wants us to see it. And there's so many other passages that he could point to to make, that, to make that argument. This way of speaking about Israel is not unique to Paul. I just wanted you to know that. It's not as if this is Paul's doctrine. Peter spoke this way. To all who believe in Christ, he said, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Do you hear the the, um, Old Covenant Israel language that's being used by Peter? He's talking to some group of people and he's saying, You're a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. A holy nation, a people for his own possession. You, you could almost think that Peter must be speaking to Old Covenant Israel, to that ethnic people, right? Given the terminology that he's using. But look at what he says at the end of this verse. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This makes it abundantly clear that he's talking 
to Gentiles, or at least to a mixed group. He actually picks up the, the language of the Hosea passage that we have just read. He, he must be speaking to Gentiles. He, he's taking this kind of Jewish language, this Old Covenant Israel language, and he's placing it upon a group of people who used to be called not my people by God. And now they are his people. So it's not just Paul. It's everywhere in the New Testament. It's on the lips of Peter. Peter and Paul spoke this way because the prophets of old spoke this way. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34 is a real favorite passage of Baptists. Um, <laughs> it gets quoted a lot by Baptists because I think here it stresses the uniqueness of the new covenant. And there's, re well, we don't need to get into that. There's reasons for it. But I, I want you to listen to Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, not with the question of, the nature of the new covenant and who should be baptized in mind, but with the question of who is Israel in mind, and whether or not it's appropriate to refer to the church, the new covenant people of God, as Israel. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34 teaches that it is. Listen, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with who? The house of Israel and the house of Judah. The days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. I guess I could just pause there and ask our dispensationalist friends, was the new covenant made with ethnic Israel alone? Is that what you wish to say? That the new covenant was made with the Jewish people only? Is, I don't think any of them would even say that. They would say, well, no. The new covenant is made with those who have faith in Christ. Exactly. And the prophet Jeremiah calls that group of people Israel and refers to that group of people as the house of Judah. Clearly the prophet Jeremiah is referring to an Israel of God in the future that is purified. An Israel of God in the future consisting of true Israel to use the language of, or to use the, the, the kind of the thought pattern of Paul. There's Israel and then there's Israel. It must be this truer Israel, this true Israel that Jeremiah has in mind. And that becomes clear in the rest of the passage. He goes on to say, This new covenant is not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. In other words, this isn't going to be a covenant of works. It's going to be a covenant of grace. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. There it is again. After those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. So Israel, in, in the new covenant era, is going to be regenerate. The Spirit of God is going to regenerate everyone in Israel in the future. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Everyone will have God as their God. They will be God's people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and teach his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. It's clear as day. The prophet Jeremiah is looking forward to the coming new covenant, and he's saying there's going to be a great change in Israel. In the coming new covenant. Israel now is filled with people who do not know the Lord. Israel now is filled with people who need to be taught, saying, know the Lord. The prophets did this. This was their ministry. Read Isaiah. Read Jeremiah and see how hard these men worked and how much they suffered. 
to say to their kinsmen according to the flesh, ethnic Israel, turn from your sins, place your faith in the Messiah, know the Lord, because most did not in those days. So Israel was filled with non-believers. Israel was filled with people in their sin. Israel was oftentimes plagued by idolatry and false teaching, etc. And Jeremiah is looking forward to the coming new covenant. He's saying, listen, this coming new covenant is going to be made with Israel and with Judah. But there's going to be a great change that takes place in Israel and Judah. All who are in this new covenant, all who are citizens within Israel and Judah, they're going to be regenerated by the Holy Spirit. They're going to have their sins forgiven. None of them are going to be told, need to told need to be told to know the Lord. They're all going to know the Lord, etc., etc. Do you see how this language is used, even in the Old Testament? So, there's going to be this great change that takes place. Um, I've run out of time. But, actually, it was, it was uh, Leona, it was John, who, uh, who really stressed this, uh, I don't know, a number of weeks ago. He said, this needs to be stated Look at what Jeremiah says so clearly. It uses the language of Israel and says the new covenant is going to be made with Israel. I said, you're right, John. I read that passage so often, but rarely is it stressed or stated outright that this is the biblical uh, way of speaking. Who is Israel? The church is Israel. The Israel of God. Where is Jerusalem? Somebody just went like this, pointed down. Right here. Jerusalem is here and Jerusalem is there. There's a Jerusalem above and there's a Jerusalem on earth. I mean, we are, where is the temple? I don't see anyone pointing east, thankfully, to any of these questions. No one's pointing east, and I'm proud of you for that. You're all saying it. It's here. Where's the temple? It's here. Where's the kingdom? It's here. And by here we mean it's manifest in, in the church. Let's pray. Father, do help us to understand these things, and I pray that it would have a real impact upon our faith, upon our hope, even upon our love. I pray that it would result also in more holiness, O Lord, more obedience to You, that we would see ourselves in the terms used by Peter, that we would see ourselves as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for Your possession, O God. I pray that You would move us to proclaim the excellencies of You who called us out of darkness and into Your marvelous light. Help us in these things, we pray. Amen.